We are the paradoxical ape. Bipedal, naked, large-brained. Long the master of fire, tools, and language, but still trying to understand ourselves. Aware that death is inevitable, yet filled with optimism. We grow up slowly. We hand down knowledge. We empathize and deceive. We shape the future from our shared understanding of the past. Carta brings together experts from diverse disciplines to exchange insights on who we are and how we got here. An exploration made possible by the generosity of humans like you. Summarizing today would be uh, a task I'll leave for someone else, but I will make a few observations. Um, because, in fact, there is some commonality. I hope, I hope you're feeling a little bit of commonality here. And one of the questions that has been driving this field, the sort of cell and molecular field, but also convergently, uh, human evolution in general is this expansion of the, of the brain. And quite remarkably, I think we are beginning to have models and an understanding of how that can happen in this field that is emerging of cellular molecular anthropology is uh, gonna be the driver that allows us to get the tools to do that. Now, there's a couple ways that we're learning that you've heard. One is through uh, sort of a, a very detailed cellular understanding. And you know, while these two speakers, uh, Wieland and Arnold, talked about it seemingly with different terminology, really very much the same story is emerging, that we have these apical or the inner uh, stem cells and the outer stem cells. And it's really that outer population that's the expanding population. This is a real discovery. This is a real understanding that allows us to um, really put some details to what's going on. Uh, further, even within that population now, we know genes that are driving this, this proliferation and uh, are, are remarkably involved. I think there's obviously much more to be learned, and Frank certainly uh, you know, in, in this whole field of brain evolution, people wonder one, whether there is certain area of the brain expands because it's needed and you get more complexity, or does the whole brain expand and then different areas get connected and sh show the specificity once the expansion has occurred? I don't think we really know the answer to that, but certainly uh, Frank uh, showed us how, uh, in addition to the features of expanded brain, the connectivity is really a, a feature and the identification of molecules that are important or genes that are important for that and, and the nature of that change uh, is, is crucial. Um, and you know, with, uh, with, uh, 
with this idea of how does this happen? What, is it, what are the drivers that are making this happen? I think, uh, again, an amazing uh, communality here, thinking about duplication and the genes that are associated with that duplication as at least being part of the story with regards to um, what, is, what is responsible for um, this happening. And, and even the timing of this is, I think, uh, is quite, re quite remarkable. I think the, the, the final link in this for me is, you know, the, the actual phenotype. How are these morphological features uh, relating to the identity of, of the unique features of what it means to be a human? And you know, this is where probably what we've learned today, at least, and, and we're learning a lot more, is, is, this, is the risks that we face it. Uh, the expansion of the brain and, and becoming human is not just the wonderful aspects of our ability to do things that other species can't, but also the dangers. And so this, we, we hear glioblastomas, we hear about autism, we hear the other risks of, of, of expanded brain, but also the other side of this story, and we've heard about this in, in our meetings before, are you know, synesthesia and other features that are unique to human that are out there that are also a consequence of the expanded genome. So while we have, uh, and I, you know, I am missing obviously a lot of the uh, key features of what's going on. One of the one thing I will end with is, is we've talked about this uh, right now. Are, are looking at the common features that are driving uh, who we are, or human evolution, and a, a feature that we have to sort of consider is the very, and, and we heard it from Joanna and also from uh, Evan is the diversity, is, is this, this diversity that's a key feature. And I think that's gonna be sort of a common theme as we get larger samples, we get larger model systems will play into that and try to understand the importance of diversity, which we haven't had a chance to really talk about why we, why we need diversity in the population for the sustaining, uh, sustaining evolution, but also sustaining the population. So that's my attempt at uh, providing for you a little bit of a structure to what we've uh, obtained, and, I, and I, I admit to it being underestimated. Now, we do have some questions, and I, I'd like to end the uh, talk picking out just a few things that allow the uh, speakers to elaborate on a few points, and some of it, hopefully, they'll... I'll start with this one nice statement. Uh, from, from one of the speaker or from one of the audience saying, all of you have created fabulous modern art, certainly on par with Frank Stella. When and where is your first art exhibition going to be? Uh, there are actually some texts out there, but I, I think, I think a, an art exhibit, exhibit would be, of scientific art would be a fun thing, and maybe we should think about doing that here in San Diego, collecting art and having an installation of some sort about science. I'll leave that to this. You've been thinking about that already? Okay, good, good. Uh, a couple of questions. One I'll take uh, because it two, two people, it's a, it's a reasonably sharp one. When ORGs and BRG clones become neurons, and this is actually for Veland and for Arnold, do we know how they decide which layer to go to or how they get there since they can't necessarily follow the glial precursors or the glial patterns? Uh, if not, is there any other way or working uh, hypothesis how that happens? So you want to come up, one Veland and, uh, and Arnold and or Arnold. Let's see how similar their responses are. You can rephrase it any way you want. <laughs> 
Uh, sure. Uh, just to clarify a little bit, uh, the neurons do indeed migrate along a glial scaffold. Uh, the deeper cortical layers appear in humans uh, and probably other primates to migrate along those ventricular radial glia very much like Pashko's model from 30 years ago or, for example, how it happens in the mouse. Uh, those neurons that are born in the second half, which are the upper cortical layer neurons, they actually uh, generally hop from one fiber to another. This is actually something that Pashko reported in EM images. Uh, electromicroscopic images that he made uh, about 30 years ago, where he showed uh, the leading fiber of uh, neuron actually moving over to another fiber a little distance away, while the trailing process remained on uh, the original fiber. So the notion that uh, neurons can actually hop from fiber to fiber is something that Pashko was aware of. And we think that has to happen at the later stages more than the early stages which has a few predictions. One of them is that there may be more dispersion among uh, clonally related cells in the upper cortical layers and the deeper cortical layers. Um, and the other feature I, I didn't emphasize is that it's been known by work from uh, Henry Kennedy and uh, Coletta Hay that the upper cortical layers of primates have a higher density of pyramidal neurons than in other species. And that's thought to be a, a super granular uh, feature that's uh, primate specific. And that uh, discontinuous glial scaffold I showed you, I think, leads into or may be an explanation for how that happened. Um, so I think that is a difference between primates, at least, and other species having to do with the way the neurons uh, get to their final targets. Yeah, I can only 100% agree with what Arnold said, and maybe one small addition, which is that unpublished work suggests that the extracellular matrix makes fibrils, in particular in the cortical plate, and that may also contribute to this hopping that Arnold was referring to. Great. Thank you, guys. Uh, you want to take a couple of these? Uh, sure. Uh, there's that a question uh, for Dr. Livesey on, um, is, there, is there significant um, human variation in the total number of neurons between individuals? There's a famous comedy television show in the UK which has comedians running up to the microphone in response to quick questions. This feels a bit like that. Um, anyway, the short answer is no. But this is true. This is true of you. I mean, if you look across any species, you know, humans, although we go on and on about difference, we're all actually very similar, the same way that most mice, you know, we fall within a range. It's when you drop outside that range, that's when you get into pathology like things like microcephaly. About uh, could Zika virus be um, used to treat uh, glioblastoma? Uh, the short answer is yes. There are uh, two recent papers that actually make that point, one from a group in the UK, another from the US, uh, showing that Zika virus actually does infect progenitor cells or uh, tumor-initiating cells in glioblastoma and uh, can destroy them similar to the way it destroys uh, progenitor cells in the developing uh, human cortex. Uh, the potential, pro there are several problems with that or uh, complications. One of them is that our work and others seems to suggest that the astrocytes in adult brain are extremely susceptible to viral infection with the Zika virus. And so although you deliver the virus directly to the tumor, you might be able to get rid of uh, preponderance of some of the tumor cells. Uh, the risk would be that you'd also uh, be able to get rid of quite a number of your normal astrocytes. So. I'm not sure that's going to be a therapeutic approach, but indeed, you know, the, the virus it has a tropism for those cancer-initiating cells, just like it does uh, to the fetally derived uh, progenitor cells as well. Great. So, uh, Joanna, uh, can genetic analysis predict how much of the Neanderthal genome each one of us is carrying? 
or how would you do that? So, so yeah, from genetic analysis, clearly, you know, we can we can look at and predict how much of Neanderthal genome is in each of our genomes. But the question is, uh, I think, also interesting: can we can we predict how how much of our looks are due to <laughs> that uh, that interbreeding? So, I think we are getting interested in 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 that question since we're all walking around with Neanderthal introgressions, and could we look at the impact of those introgression on facial morphology, for example, and 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 uh, try to essentially make make the connection again between, between the genome and the phenotype. So we, we are interested in, in that question very much. Thanks. I'll, I'll, end, on, I'll end on this one uh, for Evan. Are the syndromic conditions you've mentioned dependent or independent on consanguous marriages? You can take that any direction you want to go with. But it, so the answer is no. So consanguineous marriages are ones where you require inbreeding to essentially result in a genetic disease. And because these mutations are happening as you guys are sitting here making sperm and egg, well, some of you um, are making sperm and egg, um, they're happening all the time as is simply a consequence of our architecture. So all those kids that I showed, they effectively have one normal copy and one deleted copy. And in most cases, they're not inheriting them. They're just spontaneous big mutations that are happening in very hot regions of our genome because of the duplication architecture. Well, so that brings us to the conclusion of this symposium. I'd like to thank all the speakers for an incredible journey into the complex world of the genetic architecture and cellular events that lead to these things between our ears that allow us to try to understand what's happening. I thank you all for the questions and for still being with us here. And I hope everybody online who followed the uh, symposium also enjoyed it. Remember, you can catch these uh, symposia. In about two months, they will be edited and available to be viewed and shared with people you think might be interested in them. Thank you very much. Thank all the speakers and the audience. Thank you.